Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Happy New Year. I'm very happy to be starting off 2016 with an episode of Polygamer chatting with Carolyn Van Esseltine, game developer. Hello, Carolyn. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. It's good to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be chatting with you. I've seen you, of course, at many Women in Games Boston meetups as well as other events throughout the Boston area. It's great to finally have you on Polygamer. It's great to be here. It's been so nice running into you at Boston Women in Games and the other meetups we've run into. Oh, thank you. So I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile, and you have quite the accomplished portfolio, having worked at such developers and publishers as Harmonix and Giant Space Cat. What is it that you're doing these days in the games industry? Right now, I'm working with a company called Choice of Games. Uh, What they make is sort of like, let's say, choose-your-own-adventures for the interactive age. It is a series of novels that are highly interactive, highly choice-based, with variable tracking and other systems that you just can't have in a physical book. And they're also aimed at an older audience. Uh, They're aimed at the more of the higher middle school to adults. in addition to game developers working with them, they do have a number of accomplished novelists, including Max Gladstone, who are working with them. And I'm really happy to be working on a project for them, which I mostly can't talk about. Because it's not out yet? Because it's not out yet. Apart from that, I'm continuing to do small interactive fiction games and write about game dev in general on my website. And your website is what that? What's the URL? Sibylmoon.com. That's S-I-B-Y-L-M-O-O-N.com. And what does that mean, if I may ask, Sybil Moon? It's actually a reference to a novel by Joan D. Binge. Uh, the novel is The Snow Queen. And without going too deep down the rabbit hole of a novel that I really love, uh, one of the protagonists is named Moon Dawn Summer. And in this world, uh, being a Sybil means that you're hooked into an AI network. And I loved that idea, just this combination of spirituality and interact and uh, artificial intelligence in this world that's far more scientific than it looked. And, yeah, it's a favorite novel of mine, so I kept the reference. Oh, excellent. And I'm looking at the Choice of Games website, and they have literally dozens of games out there. And one of the things that you mentioned that these things do is variable tracking. Could you explain what that is? Well, so if you go back to the 1980s when Choose Your Own Adventures were very big, you also find the game book style books where they would have, you know, here's your character sheet and you're writing down your stats and your inventory as you go. So there's been some amount of tracking your state throughout the history of interactive game books, but through the magic of technology, we can just keep track of your inventory. We can just keep track of what your stats are. We can keep track of this choice of games, especially uh, does relationship tracking, just like Mass Effect or the other Bioware games. And so there's very much this interest in what NPCs have you encountered and how did you get along and what's going to come from there. It's just this really different experience of novels. So are are these game books? I've heard that word used before. I would say that they're interactive fiction games, but I keep coming back to game books because it's the closest physical equivalent that people are familiar with. Gotcha. One of the reasons that we are chatting today is because... Most recently on YouTube, I found a video of a talk you gave at Google about game development and game design, and it was a fantastic talk. Thank you so much for giving that, and also I'm glad that it was recorded and made available online. Thank you. 
Uh, it's about an hour long, 45 minutes plus some Q&A afterward, and you exhaustively cover how you got into the industry and what elements of it appeal to you. And there will be a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to listen to that. I'm not going to waste your time and ask you to repeat everything <laughs> you said, but just briefly, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the games industry and in what roles? Absolutely. So I've been fascinated by computer games literally since I was five, and my dad introduced me to Colossal Cave Adventure. And when I got older, I continued being very interested in computer games, very invested in the idea of technology that would interact with you. But I didn't actually find computer science to be very accessible to me, even though both of my parents were programmers. I really had everything in the world on my side, yet wound up not following that path, because I didn't know how to turn computer science into computer games. It just, the jump between what I could do in BASIC and having Mario run around on a screen, I had no idea how to bridge that gap. So what I went to Google to talk about was the rise of, of game engines that don't require you to have a programming background, don't require you to have a scripting background. Uh, engines such as Game Maker, such as Twine, such as, to some extent, Inform7, though that's actually a game engine that is more of a scripting language. But what I wanted to talk about was how it's becoming increasingly possible for anyone to make video games because of the rise of these scripting engines that anybody can use, that anybody can have access to. And I think that's really exciting. <laughs> No, it, it certainly is, and we have a similar background. I grew up with an Apple II computer that I learned to do basic programming on, and I did a few games. Only one actually came out, and I can't say that I'm the designer of it because what I did was I ported a game from, I think, the either the Amiga or the Commodore to the Apple II with the original developer's permission. I didn't have his source code, so I just... Oh man! I'm not sure I even would have understood it because it wasn't written in BASIC. So I just looked at the end user experience and wrote code to emulate that and release that for the Apple II. So I guess I'm a game developer, but not a game designer. You kind of have to track backward in order to do that. I, I maybe not the game designer, but you get some game designer cred. Do I? Even though I didn't necessarily implement any original features. Depends on how. <laughs> You didn't implement any original features for it, but you were looking at how the game fit together and what made it work. And there, I suppose it's more of a development side, but I would say that you definitely probably got game design skills out of it. Hmm. Just from sheer observation and ensuring that, yes, all your inputs did match the outputs. Probably gave you some idea of what they were after as well. Uh, I'm a big believer in breaking down games to learn about the design, so that is completely where I just came from. Interesting. But one of the things that was unique about that era, not just of game design and development, but also of personal computers, was that so few people had them and they were so hard to use. So that if you met somebody who actually knew how to use a computer, that said a lot about their skill and experience. Whereas nowadays, games and computers are much more accessible, which in my opinion is a good thing, but it also changes the definition of what it means to be able to use a computer, for example. Definitely. And it sounds like these game engines are now catching up to that and making game design development as accessible as computers have been for the last 10, 20 years. Yes, absolutely. This is an era where anyone who has access to a computer can decide that they want to make a computer game and 
do it instead of worrying about how do I get from point A to point B to point C. And in your opinion, this is a good thing? Oh, yes. <laughs> I So I have some very strong opinions about the idea of the ability to make art as a universal human right. And this is completely wrapped into that. The ability to, I want anybody who wants to write poetry to write poetry, anybody who wants to sing to sing, anybody who wants games to be able to make games. And there shouldn't be a, a barrier or a minimum required experience or skill set to do that? No, there really shouldn't. Now, I, I do want to caveat here for a moment that what I'm talking about is the ability for someone to sit down and make art. I'm not making any judgments whatsoever about what kinds of art should be commercially successful or commercially available. Just the experience of the artist. So what you're saying is that anybody should ha have access to this medium as a form of self-expression, not necessarily that anybody can or should be making games for distribution? What I mean to say is not so much a statement about who should be distributing games, but one of the reactions I saw when my talk went up was that some people were confused and thought that I was saying that anybody's games should be automatically commercially successful. And that's kind of ludicrous, actually. I mean, not everybody is going to walk into their studio, pick up a mic, and make something that's going to be a multi-million dollar hit, you know, on Spotify. It's, there's absolutely a question of skill here. Uh, there's absolutely a question of what the audience wants to receive. But yeah, for the personal artist experience, for the personal experience of self-expression, anyone should be able to make a game. When I was a kid, I would play any Nintendo game that came out, and as the angry video game nerd has made clear to us, some of those games weren't actually all that good, but we played them anyway because they were available to us. And nowadays we have sort of the opposite problem where you go on Steam or the App Store for iTunes, and there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of games to choose from. And it's so hard to separate the good from the bad. Does making game design more accessible exacerbate that issue? I think that it exacerbates that issue, but I also think that that is a problem that platforms need to be solving. So it's in Steam's interest to make it possible for me to find games that are going to interest me personally, right? Because if I find games that interest me personally, then I'm more likely to play those games. If they recommend games to me that I find good, I'm more likely to spend more money. I really don't think that's on the artist. I really think that that is on the platforms that are distributing, and that it's in their financial interests to figure out how to better curate, how to better advertise. So in your opinion, there should be some form of a... I, I don't know if curation is necessarily the same as gatekeeping. Would you say that it, there's a distinction there? There's a distinction there. Uh, so I think that... I should pause for a moment and also say that like, I think Steam is completely within their right to decide we want this on our platform, we don't want this on, their pl on our platform. Uh, just like an editor of a magazine is completely within their right to decide what short stories they want to publish. But anyone should be able to make their game and put it out, for example, on their own website or advertise it on Twitter or something to that effect. Yeah, because there's still a big difference between a critical success and a commercial success. We see movies that make lots of money but get very bad reviews. And then, of course, we see the sleeper hits that get great reviews but never seem to get the public's attention or the distribution they need to be commercially successful. And so when you open up game design to more people, not every great game, not every aspiring game designer who deserves recognition is going to be able to be heard over the 
multi-million dollar AAA publishers that have marketing teams behind them. Absolutely. And that's an ongoing form in any, that's, that's an ongoing problem in any art form. Uh, there are, I'm going to sound like a hipster in just a second. There are bands that I listen to that I don't understand why they are more popular than they are. There are games I play that I'm obsessed with that I don't understand why no one's ever heard of them. But I'm sure it's the other way around for most people. You know, everybody has their favorites and they're sitting here cheering for them to be better known and better successes. And there's just, there are so many bands out there. There are so many games out there. And that's okay. So the solution isn't fewer games and fewer bands. Exactly. Exactly. Because as we started the top of the show, there seems to be a disconnect, at least in my case, between making a game and actually being a game designer, just like there is a disconnect between the identity of a gamer and people who play games. I have a friend who he has a PlayStation 3, he wants to get a Wii U so he can play Xenoblade Chronicles, he goes to PAX East every year, but when I had him on the show and asked him, are you a gamer, he said no, because of various reasons, like he doesn't see it as being a large part of his identity, or he feels like there are more hardcore gamers out there who are more entitled to that role. And so, I, just like there are people who, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that any child who comes home from summer camp with some finger paint drawing is an artist. You know, I, I think there might be a, some sort of a minimum that you need to meet to use that word. And so, can anybody really be a game designer? Uh, I would draw the difference here between whether you're a hobbyist game designer or a professional game designer. Uh, professional, I would generally qualify as, are you getting paid for it? Uh, and that's not necessarily a difference in what your skill set is, but it's a recognizable and identifiable difference. I would, for example, consider someone who has five instruments and ha knows how to play them all and has never cut an album. Yeah, they're a musician, but they're not a professional musician. Similarly, I would say that someone who you know, has made a game a month in their living room and never distributed a single one of them, yeah, they're a game designer. But they're not a professional game designer, and they're not known for it. And it may or may not be part of their identity. I People have control of... People should have control over their own identities. If you consider yourself a game designer and you're making games, then, yeah, I'll sign on board. You're a game designer. If you don't consider yourself a game designer but you're making games... That's okay, too. If what you do all day is make games and you get paid for it and you don't identify as a game developer, I think you might be wrong. <laughs> Even though they have control over their own identity, in that case, they're wrong? Possibly. I haven't met anyone that's true of them, so, you know. True. If, probably if they're that deep in the weeds of the industry, then they're willing to self-identify. <laughs> probably. I once had somebody ask me, they said, Ken, I play Candy Crush on my iPhone every day. Am I a quote-unquote gamer? And my answer was, why are you asking me? That's for you to decide. You know, I'm not the gatekeeper to that term. So I wound up having an interesting related experience, actually, when I was preparing for the Google Talk, because I really wanted to talk to game developers who aren't programmers. And that led me to the question, how do I tell whether or not someone is a programmer? And I wound up deciding that I really needed to let people tell me that themselves. And I counted on people to err on the side of I am a programmer instead of erring off the side of I am not a programmer. And yeah, I ran into at least one person who was completely proficient with C Sharp who said I'm not a programmer. I think they were wrong. But 
On the other hand, I wasn't in the best position to make those kinds of decisions for the information I needed. So it's a little fuzzy. Do you have any insight into why that disconnect existed with that person? I believe it. I may be wrong because we didn't go into it in depth. Uh, I didn't ask. I didn't want to make them uncomfortable. It wasn't pertinent to what I was asking. The impression I got was that they didn't have a computer science background, and that was related to their to their feeling there. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. I wrote and released a game in BASIC, and I know a little bit of PHP, but I remember when I was in college, and I went to the computer proficiency test to figure out what class I should start in. All my classmates already knew C and Pascal, and I only knew BASIC, and they literally laughed at me. Oh, and I, even during one of the tests in my assembly class, the professor said, translate this assembly code into a higher level language. And I raised my hand. I said, do you mean like basic? And my classmates laughed again. Uh, but this time the teacher just said, sure, that'll do. <laughs> and, you know, because it demonstrated that I understood the programming concepts at work in the assembly language. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, knowing how much higher a skill level my classmates had compared to me, makes me reluctant to identify myself as a programmer because I think that sets an expectation that I'm not able to meet. So I can sort of understand where that developer you spoke with may be coming from. That makes a lot of sense to me. I also discovered while I was doing the research for this that people have very strong opinions about the difference between programmer, coder, and scripter. And what those opinions are varies wildly as well as people having strong opinions about them. So until we have some super solid definitions... I, yeah, again, kind of err on the side of letting people sort themselves out. I remember you mentioning at the top of your talk that you were going to use most of those terms interchangeably, which I think was wise. Uh, it's sort of like the difference between, you know, a geek, a nerd, and a dork. Yes. You know, like, I see geek as a compliment and nerd as an insult, and for some people, it's exactly the opposite. So whatever people want to call me, I just say, thank you. <laughs> and that will make you happier than the alternative. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, I'd be like most people on the internet. <laughs> Too true. So throughout this discussion, we've been using the terms game developer and game designer distinctly as opposed to programmer, coder, scripter. So what separates a game developer from a game designer? When I talk about game design, I'm looking specifically at the discipline of game design. Uh, I'm looking at whether you are... So game design, of course, has about a thousand layers, uh, most of which I won't go into here. But... You're looking at things like combat design and systems design and narrative design and uh, level design. And so it's this huge area that can all be called game design, but it's all about the player experience. And that's why I was like, mm, I think you probably learned some things about game design specifically because you were coming from the perspective of the player experience. But your point about you weren't modifying the player experience is also very valid and you might be right about not being a designer there. But game design is looking very specifically at what is the player experience in all of its ramifications. Uh, UI design also is critically important. When I look at game development, I see game development as more of an overarching title that encompasses game designer, but usually tends to include the idea that a game developer is capable of making a game on their own. Now, no, we'll go back to the, I think anybody should be able to do this, but someone who actually has. Going to my AAA experience for a moment at Harmonix, everybody that I worked with who was actually touching the game, I would describe in general as game developers. 
When you're in the indie scene, though, you are divided into artists and producers and engineers, and it's usually a much smaller team where you have to wear a thousand hats at once. So game developer becomes a very helpful label to the, yes, I make games and I am touching the actual game itself, as opposed to turning in spreadsheets of documentation. So a game developer generally needs to know how to program, and a game designer does not? Uh, needs to know how to... I'm, I'm going to caveat that needs to know how to program only because there are so many visual scripting engines in place now that don't require you to need to know how to program. I would say a game developer needs to know how to sit down and cause a game to exist. Uh, <laughs> well, like, like, I know game developers who use Twine. Most of them would not describe themselves as programmers, but they are game developers. They have started from zero in Twine and produced games. Sure, I can see that the accessibility to all these different platforms like Game Maker, RPG Maker, Twine, and Inform sort of removes the need to know how to program. Exactly. Which is not to say that it's not extremely helpful to know how to program. Uh, going to Twine for a second, if you know how to program in JavaScript, what you can do with Twine just expands to, to degrees so much greater than if you don't know how. Uh, just because Twine is expandable with JavaScript. But you can still do an amazing number of things just with Twine out of the box, as it were. So although you no longer need to know how to program to be a game developer, for example, are you a better game developer for knowing how to program? You are a game developer who is capable of making more kinds of games if you know how to program. That doesn't necessarily make you better, because you can only make so many games at once. <laughs> You can only, it's a question of where you're putting your time and energy and what you're trying to do. If I want to do something in, oh, there are so many macros for Twine that a good example is that is hard to find right now. Uh, but let's say for a moment that I want to do something in Twine that involves moving sprites around on the screen and collision detection, which I can actually do with sufficient JavaScript extension because JavaScript is JavaScript. You can do amazing things with it. Uh, you can't do that in Twine. If I want, so if I want to build a Twine game that includes a tiny bit of platforming in it, I really have to have JavaScript for that. I really have to have someone on my side who knows JavaScript. If I don't want to include anything like that, it doesn't matter whether or not I know JavaScript. If nothing I need to know, if nothing I need to do requires me to go outside the limits of my engine, then it doesn't make a difference. Now, what about being a game designer? That sounds like it doesn't necessarily need any programming skills, but I can imagine that it's useful to understand the canvas in which the game you're designing is going to be built. It's good to know the limitations of your engine, but one of the key skills of game design when you're working with other people is being able to talk to other people. Actually, I have strong opinions about how being able to talk to other people and communicate is a key game development skill when you're not working alone. And this... Probably isn't surprising because I do come from a production background when I was at Harmonix. But if you're a game designer and you're not responsible for programming your game, you're not responsible for building it in the engine, then yeah, you gotta know what your you gotta know what your engine is capable of, but you can do that also by talking to the developer, talking to the person who's going to be hands-on with it. So you need in some way to figure out what you can and can't do 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have those skills yourself. You just need access to someone who has them. There's a video I linked you to, and the link will be in the show notes, from code.org. It's a five-minute PSA on the value of knowing how to program, and it has not only individuals like Gabe Newell, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg, but also, for example, NBA player Chris Bosh or the singer and rapper Will I Am. And they all talk about how programming taught them not only how computers work, but also just how to approach problems, sort of like my high school geometry class. I've never used those geometry rules like uh, alternate interior angles or whatever in my day-to-day life, but it taught me about how to break down the problem. And I would think that even if you're not necessarily using programming specifically in your game design, it might still be a useful, if abstract, skill to have. Oh, don't don't get me wrong. Uh, I think programming is a fantastic skill to have. One of the things I was doing this entire last year was doubling down on C-sharp and improving my programming skills. I just don't think it should be a, prere- a prerequisite. And why were you doubling down on those C-sharp skills? <laughs> Unity, mostly. <laughs> so you're expanding the number of kinds of games that you can make. Absolutely. Uh, I also just, I personally, yeah, I want to, I want to be able to pull out the guts of whatever I'm working on and rearrange them and build them in new ways. Uh, I've done things with Inform it was never intended to do, and I've consequently found bugs that no one else found because, oh my god, what are you doing with Inform? You shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> but but I don't think that someone should have to have these skills. Uh, it doesn't mean that, yeah, there's a lot to be said for learning to program. Uh, there's a lot to be said for learning how the concepts of algorithms and how to break a program a problem down step by step by step so that you understand it in that holistic way, that architectural way that programming teaches you to do. There is a lot to be said for that. I just don't think it should be a gate. I don't think it should be a prerequisite for any of this. Especially because I've heard at this point many people say that they started with game with game development and then went to programming instead of the other way around. Huh. Interesting. So if people do want to get into either game design or game development, you know, I could ask you what language should they learn, C++, C Sharp, Pascal, Java, Python, PHP, Perl. But a little bit more broadly, your degree is in creative writing. It's not in computer science it's, or even interactive media and game design. So what would you recommend developers or designers pursue, computer science or creative writing? To be fair... Uh, what happened here was that I wound up bouncing off the computer science courses at my college without ever taking them because I'd been warned by people that they deliberately washed out people who didn't want to major, and I knew that I didn't want to major in computer science. Uh, I took creative writing because it was writing was my second love uh, after games. But at the time, I went to a college that didn't have a game development program. There weren't many game development programs back then. If someone is going to college and they want to be a developer, I'd say go somewhere where they will teach you those specific skills. Go somewhere where you can take a game design course, where you can major in game development, where the programming you have will be angled toward what you want to do with your life. Yeah, this is something that came up with a previous guest of the show and a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Francesca. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is currently a student at my alma mater, and when I was a student there, it was a binary choice creative writing, or computer science. And now they have bachelor's and even master's degrees of interactive media and game design. And it's so wonderful that people don't need to choose anymore, that there is this perfect amalgam 
of what they need to study. So it sounds like the recommendation is don't be forced into that binary situation. Seek out a place like where Francesca is studying that will teach you both. Yeah. If what you want to do is make games, go somewhere where they will. Let me back that up. If what you want to do is make games and you're going to pursue higher education, pursue higher education somewhere you can study games. Uh, the reason why I back that up there is because I also feel that higher education is an advantage, but it's not necessarily an advantage that you necessarily need. Because what if what you want to do is make games professionally, it is very possible to self-teach. Sure, and there are so many affordable resources out there like Codecademy, Coursera, the Khan Academy. Uh, exactly, exactly. You know, and you know, even with my limited experience with programming in basic when I was much younger, you know, I did all that by looking at other people's code, by reading some really good books, and by experimenting and having a goal in mind, which was the game I eventually released. There were no computer science summer camps that I was aware of at that age. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware of studios where what they look at is not your degree, but what was your final project in the sense of, okay, you learned to make games, that's great, what game did you make? And they'll look at something that you made outside class just as fast as something you made inside class. Right, exactly. And a great venue in which to be making those games, either inside or outside of class, are game jams. And the annual global game jam is happening this month, January 2016. I am so excited. This is my fifth year coming up. Wow. So you have participated in the last four global game jams here in Boston? Yes. At MIT every time. And what is your role when you participate in the game jam? Huh. Uh, let's see. Well, it's it's been different most years. Uh, I was so, you know, my first experience of a game jam kind of said it all. So I signed up for my first global game jam. The only engine I had under my belt at all was Inform, and I knew that we probably weren't making something in Inform because interactive fiction has become a much bigger deal since then. So I walked in there, and my card said designer because the two things I knew I could do were design slash write or produce, and I didn't want to produce because that was what I was doing during the day. So I walked in, and I expected to be doing design. We were a team of three people. I did design. I did writing. I did sound. I did art. It was kind of everything under the sun because we kind of needed everything under the sun, and that was a fantastic experience. So that was my first time was everything under the sun. Uh, let's see. My second time... Now I'm trying to remember them all in order, which just isn't going to work. Uh, but I've coded, I've coded once, I've done everything under the sun once, and I've oddly enough, I've done art twice because there was need for an artist. So when your team is that small, you just fill in where you're needed. Yes. And that's, that's very much my experience of the indie world is having a narrow specialty is great, but you really need breadth. You really need to be able to fill in where you're needed because there are aren't 100 people standing behind you. There's just like you and two other people or you and 19 other people. But whatever size it is, it's still small. And there's still this constant need for people to fill in. So who do you recommend attend a game jam? For example, I don't consider myself a developer or a designer, but I am at times a journalist and I am very interested in knowing more about the game development process. Should I go and you know sort of be an embedded journalist where I actually am participating in this event, would I have anything to contribute or would I just be dragging my team down? Especially when it's so small and it needs people with so many 
skills and such breadth, as you say. So my experience of game jams is that I personally am happiest doing art or coding, and there's a reason for that, which is that in a situation like this, people who are doing design, doing writing, you tend to be waiting around a bit more. And the reason why is because the programmers are frantically trying to program as fast as they can, or whoever is building the game. But with that said, I would recommend that anyone who wants to try building a game, yeah, go to a game jam. Find a team. Offer them whatever skill set you have. Find out if there's something new and unusual that you can try. It's The thing about game jams is that they're simultaneously very high-pressure environments and very low-pressure environments. They're very high-pressure environments because they have a time limit. And when that time limit is up, for the purposes of the game jam, you're done. You can keep going after that, but you're done. But it's a very low-pressure environment because at the end of 48 hours, you're done. You did it or you didn't do it. And whatever happened, it's over and it's okay. And you don't have to make, well, you don't have, if you're, used to doing this professionally, you don't have to make X amount of dollars. You don't have to have X number of downloads. All you have to do is go, okay, we made that thing. That was fun. So it's just, it's this amazing low pressure environment, even though it's to a time limit. And so, yeah, I would recommend if you want the experience of, yeah, I want to make a game. Sure. Go give it a shot. Put yourself together in a team where Either someone else is going to be handling the game engine if you haven't handled one before, or many sites actually are increasingly doing cardboard options where rather than actually building a digital game, they are actually building card games or board games. And they're still taking on the same kinds of prompts and still taking on the same kinds of challenges that you see when people are doing it digitally. But under those circumstances, you don't have a programming barrier even so much as do you know how to use Twine. It's, yeah, I've, I've been monologuing for a while. I'm really excited about game jams. <laughs> I think that if you want to try it, you should try it. it. That's about it. What is it that excites you so much about having to make a game in such a short amount of time? It pushes you to your limits. Really, you when you're in an experience where you're trying to make something large and long-term, you spend a, you know, you, you want to get everything absolutely right. You spend a year working on it. You spend two years working on it. You spend a month working on it. You spend these long periods of time, and you want to make sure that everything is polished and everything fits together, and you can't afford to do that kind of thing with something that's going to fall apart. And being in a game jam is like a rapid prototyping experience. If you're going to spend two years on something, you kind of want to find out rapidly whether or not it's going to be a good idea. And that's the whole idea behind rapid prototyping is finding out if a game is going to be good before you spend hours and hours and months and months and years and years on it. The game jam is like that all rapid fire. Let's get together. Let's push ourselves to the limits. Let's make something based on this idea that might be good, might be bad. We don't know. It's, it's fun. It's non-competitive. It's cooperative. It's so energy high. It's just, it's just a good time. I'm sorry, you said it's non-competitive? Non-competitive. There are sites in the world where game jams are competitive, and there are game jams that are competitive. Uh, Ludum Dare has a competitive component. But for the most part, when you're participating in a game jam, you're competing against yourself, or yourselves as a group. The question is, can I do this or not? 
And that's the only thing you have to answer. It's not like they're going to rank it first, second, third at the end. Uh, it's just a question of go in. Can you do this thing? You did it. Cool. You didn't do it. Okay. How far did you get? What did you learn? It's a huge learning experience. And yeah, it's very cooperative. What preparation do you recommend somebody has who is going into a game jam? I asked this question on the Women in Games Boston Facebook group, and I got replies from two polygamer alumni, Francesca and Khadija, who both said, uh, be familiar with a game engine like Game Maker or Stencil, for example. I agree with that. And the reason I agree with that is because if you walk in the door and you suddenly discover that it's you and three artists who wind up on a team, or you and three writers, you need to have, somebody in that group needs to have some way of building a game. Uh, and know, again, that if you want to drop back to cardboard, or if your idea is better on cardboard, that's fine. Uh, but I think there's a lot to be said, if you walk in there wanting to make a digital game, then it's a good idea if you yourself have mass, or at least, you know, the basics of a tool that will allow you to make a digital game. And Twine is my top, top recommendation for this, uh, because you can learn Twine in about 30 seconds, literally. You recommend Twine over Inform? Yes. Uh, Inform is fantastic. I love what it can do. But the learning curve on Inform is so much higher than the learning curve on Twine, simply because Inform is a scripting language. You really need to understand all its syntax, and it has... I love Inform more than I can possibly say, but it has so many quirks and so many things that don't work quite the way you might have expected. And once you're familiar with it, it all fits together and it all makes sense. But in a game jam environment, you probably don't want to be trying to learn that all. You probably want to have something where you can where you can just boot the program and how to make it work is obvious. Twine is a system that makes intuitive sense, more intuitive sense than any other engine I've ever seen. But even if I know one of these two engines, either Twine or Inform, I believe it was at your first game jam that you realized you weren't going to be making a game in one of those engines. So does having that skill in preparation for a game jam really prove applicable? Well, not that at my first game jam, what happened was that there were two engineers on my team immediately. So uh, they had worked together before. They knew that they wanted to work in Pixel, I think it was. And so... I immediately knew that I wasn't going to be responsible for building the game. I was going to be responsible for building things around the game, uh, building components of the game instead. Uh, you can't guarantee that you're going to have an engineer on your team. You can't guarantee that you're going to have a coder. In general, yeah. Uh, there are sites where they take care to make sure that does every team have a coder? Does everyone have a plan for how they're going to build this? Uh, MIT is one of those sites. I think that that's a really good decision Rick makes there. But it's not something that necessarily happens at every site. And it's conceivable that I will walk into MIT and we will discover that 50 people have signed up to do design. Now what? If there are people in the room who know how to tw do twine, we know what we're doing. If there are 50 people who know how to do design and everybody is counting on everybody else to know how to use the engine, that's a problem. So I think it's a good idea to have at least access to twine, at least access to stencil, at least access to some engine that you have a basic idea of how to use, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go if you don't have a good idea, if you don't have a plan. But it's it's a good preliminary step. Do you also recommend that interested participants have a minimal or basic understanding or skill set in 
other fields? Like, should they know a little bit about sound in case there's nobody on the team who does sound or a little bit about art? Depends on how minimal we're talking. I mean, it's a good idea to, it's a good idea to have a copy of Audacity. It's a good idea to have a copy of Paint.net or, you know, whatever your equivalent uh, bare minimum audio system and bare minimum, uh, bare minimum paint system are. It's, but, you know, if worst comes to worst, you can build a game that doesn't have sound. If worst comes to worst, you can build a game that just uses programmer art the whole time. That's okay, as long as it's comprehensible what's happening in the game, or as comprehensible as you want it to be. It's not the end of the world if you have programmer art. Promise. <laughs> Thank you. Good to know. The other thing that you need to bring to the table, though, if not concretely, then at least the ability to generate it while you're there, is an idea for a game. And that's one of my biggest challenges in undertaking any vast project, whether it's a game or a novel, is coming up with an idea that needs an entire fill-in-the-blank to tell, whether it's a game or a novel. And at the same time, in the context of a game jam, it also needs to be small enough that you can make some sufficient progress in just 48 hours or so. So I, there really is no good answer to the question, where do your ideas come from? Charles <laughs> Schultz was once asked that question, where do your ideas come from? And he said, Schenectady. <laughs> you know, so I don't know what I'm looking for here, but how do you come up with an idea for a game jam? Well, one thing that really helps with the global game jam is that they will give you some kind of idea to start with, uh, some kind of prompts that you can spark off of and come up with your ideas. Uh, the first time it was the Wikipedia graphic of an Ouroboros. Uh, the next year it was the sound of a heartbeat. Um, the years after that were quotes. So there's, there's a gem there that you can start thinking about and looking at all the angles of it. But the other thing is you're going to have a team. The way it works at MIT, and I recognize that this varies from site to site, but the way it works at MIT is that people brainstorm and then pitch their ideas and attempt to recruit teams off their ideas, which means that somebody who doesn't have an idea can just join another team and everything is fine. Uh, the problem is usually much more there are so many ideas that we can't possibly build them all. Under those circumstances, okay, we have an idea. How do we fit it into 48 hours? My answer is always scope down make the smallest version of your idea that you possibly can. If you had this idea for five mechanics, what's the most important mechanic? Build that one. If you had this idea for 20 levels, build one level, but make it exactly right. Make it the smallest version of your idea that still shows what your idea is, because you only have 48 hours to do it in, and there is never enough time. That's kind of like the same advice when asking for Kickstarter funding, is what is the minimum you need to create this game? And then all the additional features can be stretch goals. Yes. I'm not sure I realize that the Game Jam gives you that starting point, whether it's a quote or a picture or something. I really like that. It's sort of like the idea that limitations breed creativity, which is the same reason I, to this day, still love retro computing with my Apple II. So you have this idea or a germ of an idea for a game. You have 48 hours in which to do it. And to be able to produce something in that context requires a lot more creativity in a way than, oh, you have the next year and all the resources you need to make whatever game you want. <laughs> you know, you'll, pro you'll probably have more to show in 48 hours of a game jam than you would with, an out with a year of infinite resources. Well, it depends on how you leverage your infinite resources. But yeah, there's the 48-hour limit gives you just this incredible focus. That's also why I like Ludum Dare, is because it has that, here's your cue, here's your focus, Go see what you can make. 
Uh, Ludumdare also being another international game jam, but one that doesn't usually have physical sites and one that uh, happens repeatedly throughout the year. Uh, but moving back to the game jam, moving back to the global game jam, uh, yeah, having that having that seed is incredibly helpful. Having those limitations is incredibly helpful. Uh, this is why I prefer writing sonnets to free verse, because the limitations are, they're a challenge, but there's something that inspires as well. Yeah, I can see that. Having some sort of a structure in which to work gives you more jumping off points in a way. I think it's Robert Frost who said that writing free verse was like playing tennis without a net. <laughs> That's just not a game. Yeah. It may be fun, but it's not a game. <laughs> or at least it's not tennis. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you have 48 hours. Build tennis. <laughs> right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, wonderful. We have learned so much in this past hour about game design, game development, computer programming, and global game jams. Is Obviously, we could talk about this for hours more, but is there anything else you want to add in before we sign off? The one thing I would add in is I seriously encourage people to try a game jam if it's something they think they would like. There are options that are small. Itch.io has this running list of game jams. There are options that are as large as the global game jam. The experience of making a game is something special. Game jams are the equivalent of National Novel Writing Month, only for games and not November only. It's worth giving it a shot if you've ever wanted to. Excellent. And people who are interested in participating in the Global Game Jam being held January 29th to the 31st all throughout the world can find more information at globalgamejam.org. Carolyn, thank you so much for giving us your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Remind our listeners where we can find you online. All right. My Twitter is MossDogMusic. Every word is spelled like you think it is. And my website is SybilMoon, which will be in the links. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and I will see you at Women in Games Boston. See you there. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. So there was one thing I was wondering about. I admit that I haven't listened to more than one or two episodes of Polygamer. Uh, So I just wanted to check. I know that this is normally a diversity-focused podcast, but for the most part, it sounds like we're not going to be talking about topics like that, which is actually exciting to me because I kind of hate that experience of, and you're just here for diversity, even though I know that's your focus. So I wanted to make sure that that's okay, that you don't need to, I mean, if if there are more if there are things that are focused more in that angle that you want to do because that is the focus of the podcast, I'm okay with that. I just wanted to make sure that everything was here the way you wanted it to be. Great question. So I have two answers to that. One is that after about the, the first six months of doing Polygamer, I realized that focusing exclusively on traditional definitions of diversity and equality can actually be kind of depressing. <laughs> And so I've tried to expand it to not only discussing diversity, but also people who are doing diverse things. And that can include, like, for example, cosplay. Okay. So I had a whole episode about cosplay this past August. Uh, there, uh, you know, I just did an episode last month with uh, the artist of a gay erotica calendar featuring characters from video games and suggestive poses and the like. 
clearly I have to catch up with the recent episodes. <laughs> Uh, and the other answer I have for is this a diversity podcast is the topic we are discussing today, in my opinion, is diversity because we have, I think, a very narrow definition of what it means to be a game developer and you're sort of cracking that open and saying anybody can code, anybody can game and let's talk about what these definitions actually mean and how people can get in. And if people can use tools like Twine or Inform to as an entry point into the game industry, then that opens the door for more diversity in gaming. Super. Yeah. Sounds like we're on the exact same page then. That's yeah. great. Yay. I like it. <laughs>